And Lord, through these words that you revealed that we find obscure at times, it's not the easiest of your scriptures to grasp. And Lord, it's not the easiest of your scriptures to preach. But we recognize the gift of them to your church through all ages. And ask that in this moment in time, the word would be powerful and active, shaping us. Your spirit would enable us to learn and grow and grow in faith and obedience. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, I was uh, a little bit excited yesterday. I don't know. Let's have a show of hands. Who was uh, really excited for the restarting of Doctor Who? Ah, some faithful hands shoot up straight away. They're real keenies. Uh, It's a shame Henry's not here because he would have been... Who's a little bit reticent to let on that they were looking forward to Doctor Who? Yeah, there are a few more. Um, Why are we talking about Doctor Who? Well, it's... I don't know if you noticed, and if you don't watch Doctor Who, this will go over your head, Um, but Doctor Who is a little bit... Um, complicated at the moment because it also, also has, has all these sort of timelines and things going on and it's all a little bit complicated. But one of the repeated rephrase, phrases that's come through all uh, this kind of plot line uh, of the recent months is, is to do with uh, how the Doctor on the other characters won't spoil. I mean, you know, the spoilers, they say. Spoilers, they won't let on what they know about the future or the past. They won't let on and give away what's about to happen, because it will influence the way the characters and the situations happen. And they don't want to do that. This is a bad thing. Spoilers. Do you get that? Hands up if you don't, I will re-explain it. (laughs) Revelation likes to give us spoilers. The letter that John has received, the letter that or the the visions that John has written down, in all their complexity, in all their symbolism and curiosity and slightly bizarre imagery, are like the spoilers of Doctor Who. God wants us to know. He wants us to understand what is happening and why it's happening and where the trajectory of our life and history and society and all cultures and all nations and peoples are getting to. He wants us to know the end. Because it's good for us. Because unlike Doctor Who, it says, well, if you know, it will shape your behavior and perhaps change your behavior. That's precisely the point of the scriptures. Jesus wants us to know the ending because that should affect who we are. We're not adrift on the sea, kind of floating around in a sea of chaos and happenstance and uncertainty or anything like that. We are in the hands of God who is reigning on his throne. Hallelujah. That all history is in his his control, in his purpose. There is nothing out of bounds for God. And he wants his people to know in the struggles of life, the destination and the purposes of where he will roll things up and make things happen. Does that encourage you? I remember being, uh, you know, health and safety has gone a little bit chaotic, hasn't it? Maybe not. I, I don't think some things, are, some things are good, some things are bad. But I remember doing some things when I was a child that I'm sure I wouldn't inc- encourage my godchildren. Uh, my, uh, Isaac, his grandparents are here, so I'll just clarify that in case they are worried. Um, I remember when I was little, we used to go and sometimes on walks, we would cross train tracks. There's a look of horror on parents' faces here. And we, I don't know quite why we did this, but we would, 
sometimes like put our ear to the, to the railway track. Who's done that? It's all the older ones of us. I class myself, and, some, and Karen over there, uh, representing the younger. I don't recommend you go and do it. It's not the most sensible thing. But one of the things we used to do was to go onto the railway tracks where we were crossing over, and we would lie on the, and put our ear on the track. Why were we doing that? Because we wanted to be able to know if a train was coming. First, we'd look. I mean, that's the obvious thing. <laughs> we didn't kind of go like this. And block it. We would look first. But then we, and, be, and what we were listening for was a kind of a rattle. Do you remember that? And at times, you'd hear a faint rattle. you think, oh, train's coming. And because we were timid children, we'd like rush back, and we'd wait and wait. And maybe if we were a bit bolder, we'd go again, and it would be louder and louder. We'd hear that the train was coming. We couldn't see it, but we'd hear the signs. We would perceive the signs that the train was coming. Revelation's a bit like that. To the church in every age, it's a sort of metaphor saying, put your ear to the track, and you will hear that the return of Christ is coming. And it's not far away. Know that. Know that. And act accordingly. You see, in these passages which seem complicated and and obscure, something keeps happening as we've preached through. Do you remember in the earlier chapters of Revelation, after the letters to the churches, and then there's this vision of Christ on the throne and all the peoples kind of gathered, and the little lamb, the lamb who was slain, opened the scroll. Remember that? And then there was this whole sequence of, of chapters of what were the seven seals. Do you remember that? Not in the aqua park, kind of those seals, but seals like opening the scrolls, the purposes of God. And between the sixth and the seventh, you get chapter seven. And in chapter 7, you get this great glimpse of the heavenly throne room, and there's the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's 12,000 from each tribe, and then John says, I saw before a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe and tongue and language, and all worshipping God and the Lamb and praising God, worthy, worthy, worthy. Do you remember that? And then the seventh seal. And again here, in this uh, section, we get the seven trumpets And one way to look at Revelation, rather than it being kind of this sequence of, well, the seals and then the trumpets and then the plagues, actually one way to look at Revelation is is John is repeating the same message three times. The seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and then the seven plagues that come. As a retelling, a reiteration, a reminder of telling things three ways about what is to come. And we see in the midst of, of the seven trumpets, we get this break again where kind of John's eyes, rather than seeing the judgments and, uh, and the challenges that are coming, he, sees, he takes a step back and the assurance is given to the church. So in, in the insurance of chapter 7, to remind the people of God who are being persecuted and harassed and, uh, and killed for their faith, that their names are written in the book of life and that they're, they're, the, the kingdom will prevail and all peoples will hear the gospel because all tribes and nations will be represented, it's a long sentence, need a breath, before the throne of God. To a church that is being hard-pressed and pulled and stretched, the assurance that God's purposes prevail. As the emperor Domitian and all the emperors after him and to come who do awful, awful things, and the people from beyond that who do awful, awful things to the Christians, they have their spoiler given, their ear to the track, and are assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord reigns, And his purposes are working out. 
And we see that again in, in this uh, kind of break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blasts. And we see it in the, give, in the, in the taking of the temple, of the measuring of the temple. Now, the temple in John's time has been destroyed in Jerusalem in AD 70. It's been obliterated. He knows that. He's writing in Patmos. He's been exiled. He knows the persecutions that are racking up and the, the stress and strain of living for Jesus. And he knows how the old form of the Jewish religion has been wiped away, still has not been restored. Won't be because the Messiah has come. But he says, in this vision, take, go and measure the temple. Go and measure it. Don't measure the outer one where the Gentiles are, are kind of creating commotion and, and all that. But he says, he worships the temple, uh, he measures the temple. Why? Well, the reminder that God is still worshipped. The reminder that God has still his presence amongst his people. The reminder to be assured and certain that even in the midst of the chaos of the outer places, the reign and rule and order is not supplanted by chaos. That God's life, God's purposes, God's plan is alive and well. That love, God, has drawn the lines against the devil's anarchy. Be assured, John writes, be assured. Whether it's in the, the financial meltdown that seems to be there, talk to Miles if you want to know horror stories of what might be. He'll, uh, he'll give nightmares to you if you like, or other financial bots. Worrying times. Or in the rise of fundamentalism. Or in the seeming how the nations are being shaked, shaken. What are we to do? Or maybe the uncertainty of, of family living. Is the job secure? Is the health going to be okay? Just kind of on my heart, as I was told one of the team we took to Kenya last year, he's 18, just got his A-levels, just being diagnosed with liver cancer. And into those strains, into that struggle comes the message. God is reigning. No matter what happens. And some of it will be bad. And some of it will be something we wouldn't wish upon ourselves or upon our enemies. But know and be assured that the Lord reigns and we're in his hand. Beautiful passage in Romans 8. Nothing separates us. Nothing separates us. In heaven or hell, in angels or demons, principalities and powers, not even life or death separates us. That could raise a smile or a little kind of, yay, okay. It's good to know. Be assured. Be assured. In what may come, I can't predict that. Be assured. The angel in chapter uh, 10 says, there'll be no more delay. Again, the reiteration the hour is unknown, but Christ is coming. Hallelujah. 
No fear for the Christian, but let that shape your living. It's not that we are kind of working it out and going on a blanks, you know, kind of feeling our way. We know the end from the beginning. I love the little phrase. I don't know if you spotted it. You know, in the worship songs, we often sing who was and is and is to come. Great song, isn't it? Notice how there's a kind of slight tweak on this in verse 16, uh, 17, sorry. Uh, as the 24 elders seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, they say, listen for the slight nuance in what they say. We give thanks to God, uh, to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. There'll come a day when we don't longer sing and is to come because he will have returned. And his kingdom will be established forever. Hooray! I don't make glib of that. Hooray! Hallelujah! It shapes us. So what about these symbols and these images? We get to uh, this in chapter 10, the angel and the little scroll. Again, the angels are symbolic sometimes of, of God and the things of God which seem invisible find uh, the angels make visible for us. And in this cycle of, of the trumpets as this huge angel stands with one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, in other, in other words, spanning all of the created order. He has this little scroll and he, he John hears as the, uh, the angel swears that this will come to pass. Remember that Jesus is the one who fulfills God's purpose and allows God's plans to be unfolded. That's what we saw in chapter 4 and 5. And then the voice from heaven says, go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. And John goes up to this enormous angel. Quite how he reaches to the big hand, I don't know, but he takes the little scroll and he's told that he's got to consume it. It will be sweet to the mouth and sour or bitter to the stomach. It's a curious thing to eat, that diet. The scroll of God. Who's eaten some funny things? Dave, what have you eaten? Goat's testicles. Yeah, there we go. Um, who else has eaten? Uh, there's a look of horror somewhere. Who else has eaten something slightly? Who could top that? Yeah? Fried locusts, Sunday lunch? Just a snack. We won't be coming to you later. Uh, who else has eaten something curious? Everyone's a bit embarrassed now. Um, I've eaten caterpillars, gritty little beasts. Um, sorry? Haggis, that is very strange, isn't it? Those funny little creatures that run out in Scotland that uh, they persecute. Um, what else? Any other... Curiously, Mark, these are things you could try, all these good foods. I remember eating caterpillars in Zimbabwe, and they, it was, um, they loved it. They were like, oh, have and they were like, well, I'd eaten flying termites. They were like smoky bacon crisps, nice and crunchy, and I quite like those. Take the wing, pluck the wings out first. Uh, but... The caterpillars, they were dry, they're called mtrimbi, and they kind of cooked them in this frying pan, and, and you ate them, they were like tough and gritty and not very nice. I brought some back with me to kind of share with my English friends, and they didn't appreciate them either. But I was kind of like, you know, you have to put it in your mouth, and you're like, really, it's like, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, when they were doing all those kind of bush tucker trials, and, and there's that kind of, ooh, and you have to force yourself 
to actually swallow and kind of go through with it because everything within you is saying, don't do it, don't do it. And they were saying, well, what, you know, we can't believe that you eat prawns and oysters and mussels because to the Zimbabweans, they were like the weirdest, most disgusting things you could ever eat. But in England, we eat them relatively happily, I suppose. Strange things to eat. John is told to eat this scroll. The precedent has already been set to Ezekiel in in chapter 2 and chapter 3. God says, eat the scroll. And just like to John, Ezekiel was told it would be sweet on the lips, but bitter in the stomach. Does God want to give food poisoning? No. It's symbolism. It's symbolic to say to us that the word of God is good for us. uh, in, um, In the Psalm 119, the word of God is like a lamp to my feet. Or it's like, it's sweet like honey to the lips. It's good for us. That as Christians, and and as John is reminding the church to take this in, to feed upon it, to eat it, and there's a sweetness to it. Just like honey is, you know, if in the ancient world, they didn't have cane sugar and all that kind of stuff we can buy, refined sugar. Honey was the thing of sweetness. It was a privilege. It was a, a real treat. The word of God is a treat, it's a privilege, it is something that is sweet to lips that we would do lots to get because it is a real, real lovely thing to eat. It's delicious. And as such, we are, as Christians, to, to feed on the word, to see it as something that is sweet and good and wholesome and amazing, as the word of God should be, as we take it in, as we ingest it, it is good nourishment for us. It's not kind of a bitter pill or bad medicine. It's sweet like honey. I went to Soul Survivor uh, with some of the youth. You know that. And we encourage them as we're going there to a Christian camp. We say, you know, pack up all your stuff. You need tea towels and sleeping bag and poles and tent and all that you need. But bring your notebook and your Bible. Why? Because it's coming to an event where God will speak to you. And we want you to be able to learn that and follow that and be inspired in your faith. And I was a little bit troubled because we got there and some of the, like, oh, I've forgotten my Bible. And I was reminded of people I've met and people I've read about who literally walk for miles and who ha- live in fear of someone discovering. They've even got a page of the scriptures. That in China, they, they pull the Bible apart and they pass the pages around so they can learn them from by heart and pass them on to the next one. Such is the realization that this is the precious word of God. Sweet and nourishing and good. Are you feeding on it? Are you? I won't do the show of hands and the guilt-making thing. And there's lots of ways to read the Bible. But I have to say, as a church, we must build on this spiritual discipline. We must become people again of the word and of the truth. We must. It's not optional. It's not like, well, the Bible's tough, so I'm going to just do the prayer. Or I'm not going to leave the the Bible somewhere because it's a bit difficult and I don't like reading and... We must. There are, uh, Mark Bailey at Trinity was saying, uh, that someone, was at, he's, he, someone asked him, what's the God doing in your church at the moment? And he said, what they felt God inspired them to do is read the Bible in a year. 
And he said, it's been amazing. It doesn't sound very, you know, very dramatic, does it? It's not like they've got some revival campaign. He said, we're reading the Bible as a year, as a church. We're committed to this. Because they recognize, again, the importance of the word in shaping and feeding and nourishing, the sweetness of it. In Soul Survivor, they, they're doing for a second year, encouraging all those teenagers to get the Bible and read it through in a year. At least make a start, at least try. If you fail somewhere in the year, well, see it as a success that you'd, at least you've done something, not stop at the beginning thinking it's too much, won't even bother. There's great ways that we can read and learn, whether we meditate on and take a few verses and learn them and, uh, and internalize them, whether we have a, a Bible reading plan for the morning or the afternoon or the evening, or whether it's a set aside a certain time in the week or whatever it is, please read the scriptures that the life of God, the teaching of Jesus Christ, they're sweet. Would you do that? If you've stopped, start again. If you don't know how to read the Bible, talk to me. Talk to your house group leader. Go to the house groups that meet on Wednesdays or other times of the week and really give your house group leaders a hard time by asking the questions and prove to them that you've been reading the scriptures because you've found the difficult things or the easy things or saying what God has been doing. Will you do that? House group leaders will go, no, please don't. (laughs) But it's also bitter It's bitter because as we're formed and as we ingest and as as we take up the scriptures and they change us, the scriptures are powerful. It changes us and it makes us see the world differently and it makes us know what the difference between right and wrong is and it makes us aware of what it means to live for God and how big a gap there is between the way the world is and the way that Christ calls us to be. And it makes us groan and a pain inside because we know what we should be like and what the world should be like. And and even when we begin to start telling this is God's ways, that people reject and rebel and persecute and say, no, you're stupid, get away. And it becomes bitter, sour, painful within. I came across uh, this story, not a story, a true true research that talked about... um, It was conducted amongst members of the Catholic Church. And they asked them about their kind of life with God. They said they found the majority of those surveyed reported having a mystical, life-changing experience or experiences with God. But then they asked them, and the majority reported that having had such experiences, they also said they never told anyone about them. Why? Most of them answered, because people would think I was crazy or a Jesus freak or something. It's bitter. That it, the word of God shapes us and forms us. And sets us in that challenge where we, we know right from wrong. That's a good thing. But it's a challenging thing. I was in Soul Survivor in the field in Shepton Mallet when the riots were going on, but one of the reports, I'll paraphrase it, said about a teenager who said, why were you looting? He said, well, the police weren't here and they weren't there to stop me. The implication being, well, as long as there's this police there to stop me, I won't do it. There's no recognition of right and wrong in the midst of the person. Doesn't that pain you? I had a friend at university back in the day called Jane. 
she was part of the Christian Union and she was living and loving God. And then we left university and I heard through a mutual friend, she, she got engaged and married to a, a man and he wasn't a Christian. And my friend who's reporting this talked to him and said, you know, this isn't God's plan. This isn't wise. This is not going to be the best way to live your life. And she said, no, I'll be fine. I'll carry on with my faith. And I now know she's nowhere with God. You know, the, the word of God, when we know it, sets up challenges because there are things we want to do, but we know aren't right in God's eyes. And it seems bitter or sour to us, like, why can't we do this? Or why must we live like this, God? Well, actually, it's good for us, but it seems hard. The word of God is powerful and it shapes us. Just like John, we're called to imbibe it, to take it in, to live by it. You know, if you go to Evesham or Stratford and you go to the canal basin, you see all the canal boats tied up on the side of the bank. And it's a bit like, you know, if you've become a Christian or thinking about being a Christian, well, how do you start in this Christian life? Well, it's no good if you're a boat staying tied to the bank, is it? You've got to cast off, go with the flow. You can't have both. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm into these waterways things, but always remain tied to the land. When we start our journey with Jesus, when we cast off the old ways, we leave the bank, we leave the ways of the world, and we flow with the Spirit. You must cast off. Feed on the word. At times it will be challenging for our own walk with Jesus. And at times the world will reject us and oppose us and say you're living fantifully and foolishly. But it's the way, the way of God. And thirdly, what I want to just highlight from these passages is, is the way of, of witness. The way of witnessing. He talks about these two witnesses in the, in the story and the passage and time, 1,260 days. There's great speculation. Who are these witnesses? But I know you've been listening for a while. Would you like a joke? Since you've been so affirming, I'll give you two jokes. Two jokes. What do you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness and a Baptist? Anyone know? Someone who knocks on doors but won't say anything. A local priest and pastor stood by the side of the road holding up a sign that read, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. They planned to hold up the sign to each passing car. Leave us alone, you religious nuts, yelled the first driver as he sped by. From around the curve, they heard a big splash. Do you think, said one of the people to the other, we should put up a sign that says, Bridge out instead? Not so good, was it? There's, there's debate about what it means in these two witnesses. I have to say the passage isn't the most clear. There's a great deal of speculation of, of who are these two witnesses. Are they two literal people who will come and who will fire from their mouth, burn up people, and they will be powerful and perform great miracles, and then... The world will get them and they'll be dead and they'll gloat and pass presents and then they'll rise up from the grave and the world will be terrified. 
Um, I'm skeptical about that version of interpretation because so much of Revelation is literal. There's other speculation to say, well, are these witnesses the church? Well, possibly. There's a great deal of, of weight to say that these witnesses are the church. Others talk about how it could be symbolic of Moses and Elijah. References being, well, they talk about, you know, when Elijah prayed, the the heavens didn't rain, there's no rain for three years. There's a reference to that in Scripture. The idea of plagues, again, Moses in Egypt, in setting his people free, could be to do with them. Other people speculate, well, it represents Moses and Elijah, but actually talks about the law, the truth of God, the standards of God, and, and the witness of the prophetic that which is God's word to us now in the here and now, knowing that God hasn't abandoned his at work and the power of God shaping us. I think this, the truth of the scripture is more towards that. But above and beyond that, what would the church hear from that? The importance of witnessing, of telling of what God is doing. Of not being shy, of not being, of being mute about what God is at work doing. Witnessing is, is really important. God is at work. We're to witness to the risen Christ. Someone has put it like this. Today in a world where three out of four people have yet to believe in Jesus, three out of four of the population of almost seven billion have yet to believe in Jesus. And at least two out of those four have yet even to hear of Jesus. If a congregation is not reproducing, it's not a New Testament church, no matter what it calls itself. Witnessing. You know, those Catholics in the survey said they'd encounter God, but they didn't speak of it for fear of being treated as freaks. Witnessing isn't preaching. Witnessing isn't writing books, necessarily. Witnessing isn't standing on a soapbox somewhere and berating people on the corner of a street. Witnessing is about telling what God is doing, that God is alive, God is active, of saying there is another way, world. We don't have to exaggerate. We don't have to blow it into out of all proportion. We just tell it like it is, that God is at work. God is alive. God is answering our prayers. God is shaping my life, even in the tough as well as the good, and showing people in our living that he's on the case. Witness. Witness. I've, I've asked two people if they just come and um, just uh, share a little bit about, about how God is at work. I don't know if there's people who don't believe in Jesus here at the moment. Maybe you're skeptical. Hear of what God has done. It won't prove it to you, but it's evidence. James, where are you? This is part of the story. It's not the end. It's not the conclusion. It's just the way God has been involved. James, just very quickly, tell us a little bit about the circumstance and then what happened and how you know that God's been at work in your (laughs) experience. Thanks. How long have we got? Um, yeah, Edward asked me just to share a few things with you this morning and just want to just put you in the picture really a little bit about what God's been up to really 
just a very brief sort of analogy where 18 months ago, God took away my business that I had on the high street in Camden. I had a, a retail business, and he very clearly said to me to close the business. It was a financial situation. It was very difficult. We were struggling financially. The shop, the business had gone, and he just told me to close it. And um, a miracle sort of happened whereby a chance meeting with my landlord who allowed me to close the business at the end of January as I felt God was instructing me, um, which was just amazing because I had a further 18 months on my lease, but the landlord allowed me to close the business without any financial repercussion, which was just a miracle in itself, knowing what my landlord was like. But at the time, obviously, I was leaving my business and I had no form of income, and what was I to do? And Dorma wife at the back as well, and it's quite a terrifying time when God tells you to do this. Um, but almost straight away, after a few things happened, a new business was set up, which I'm still running now. And um, it's just been incredible, really, because over the past 18 months, very much it's been the case where God has provided work for me, but it's been very much on a week-by-week -week basis. So he said, here's enough work for next week, and I do that work and have no knowing of what's going to be happening the week after. And um, after leaving the business as well, I've had debt from the business, which I'm still working through now. And just God has just been amazing. He's just blessed us. Oh, I'm going to get upset now. Uh, he's blessed us so much and provided so much. And there's been so many people who have helped us out, who have provided money, who have given us money or have given us money that we've paid back and um, just been working through and clearing debts and just very much seeing God at work. And, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. You can look back and, and you know, at the time you just think, what, an, what a crisis to be in. But you look back and just see how much God has provided and how much he's cared for you and looked after you and, and just provided. It's just been wonderful. And uh, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, we, we were in a service, just say something. Yeah, we, um, about a month or so ago, Dawn and I were at the evening service, and Edward was speaking, and he touched a bit about debt, and was sharing a few things, and, and there was a, an opportunity uh, for prayer at the end of the service, and one of the things was debt amongst two or three other things, so I went up to Edward and asked for prayer. Edward prayed for, with me with somebody else, and was asking specifically that... Um, to just to try and see God at work and to continue in, in clearing more of the debt. And just the last two or three weeks, there's been a substantial amount of debt that I'm still dealing with that uh, has, has been written off, has been cleared through people's provision and, and other means as well, which has just been great. It's just been a real big turning point. There's still areas to work through, still large amounts to work through, but have been very much seen from that prayer of, of God clearing yet more debt for us. Fantastic. Mike. Mike is the grandfather to my godson, so I'll be in trouble later at the railway tracks. Um, Mike was here a few weeks ago. Well, it was the beginning of July. We darkened your doors last. Is this thing working? Yep, yes, it is. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I was feeling very low. Um, End of July, uh, income, second bout of the income tax to pay. If you're self-employed, you'll know that. Uh, VAT to pay, and there wasn't the money there to pay it. And I was feeling really low, and 
I can't tell you much about the service. Um, and after the service, oh, they were joining the service, though. There was a man, a uh, businessman talking about in computers, talking, and I said, oh, well, this is a church that's interested in real things. I, I, I get annoyed when people uh, just pray for, you know, the, the bad toe or the, or the achy shoulder. And I say, well, okay, now, Lord, you know, they have words from the Lord. People will stand up and say, um, I had a word that somebody needs praying for their knee. I said, come on, Lord, how about praying for me? How about a word, somebody having a word that somebody needs praying for their business? And it never happens. But I thought, okay, oh, this is a church where it's actually interested in real things and real people. Uh, anyway, so um, at the end of the service, I don't know whether it's you or your, um, uh, said, you know, if anybody wants prayer, go down to the front there and there'll be people wanting to pray for you. Now, I had two urgent needs. One was to go to the loo and one was to be prayed for. I attended to one first. By the time they came back, they'd obviously given up. Anyway, uh, my wife bounced up and said, hello, you wanted to be prayed for? And she went over to Edward and you grabbed Malcolm. Is Malcolm here today? He's a great man to pray for you. I tell you, he's a good man. Um, and I've got to tell you this, I can't tell you a thing he prayed. Couldn't tell you a word. But the Lord heard our prayer, heard his prayer. And wonderful things have happened. Um, and we've got, look, it's a difficult time to be in business. But we are all right. And we know, I've, there's a wonderful peace about it. We paid our income tax, we paid the VAT, we have a few employees. We don't want to sack anybody. They're family, as far as we're concerned. And we're, we're all right. Um, just want to say, when we were in trouble a number of years ago, I said to the Lord, well, come on, it's your business. I can't run this. I'm, not, I'm no good at it. You do something about it. And we've always referred to him since as a senior partner. And so I pray. Uh, many times to the senior partner, I say, give us this day our daily bread. And I will say, he doesn't fail us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Mike. Just two little stories of encouragement. Praise God. God is at work, and that's what witnessing is about. Rather than hiding it away and saying, well, and I'm, Phil and I are often privileged to get emails from you, and it's so encouraging to hear what God is doing, but let's just, let's just share that a bit more, whether it's in house groups or maybe we should have like a, not a formal like testimony slot in it, but actually to be able to speak of what God, God's doing, it witnesses that he's alive and at work. And when the world is, is clamoring and saying, don't believe that, it's disproven and outdated and rubbish, actually it's not. Jesus is the one we can put our trust in and faith in walk with every day. And this witnessing is so, so important. I'm finishing with this. That sometimes we think about this, make, calling people to follow Jesus, and we, we locate it into the kind of the big event. And we've got some coming up, whether it's, it's Alpha again, or whether it's this Elvis evening, or, or men's breakfast, or ladies' lunch. They're all really, really important. We should do them. But if we think that's enough, we miss the point. It's about you and I witnessing in the daily conversation, the daily living it out, of drawing alongside people who have not yet faith and showing and telling this is the different way of living. This is the faith that I have. This is the difference it makes. 
someone described it like this, if you've got 50 empty bottles, you wouldn't then take a bucket of water and fill it up and kind of just go, and that's the way to fill up the bottles. It's not very effective. You take one by one and you pour into each one. And it's a reminder that events where we have mission and outreach and evangelistic strategies are great. But if that's all we do, it's like throwing the bucket of water and expecting them all to be filled. But it's about taking time and pouring into each one such that they should have the choice of genuinely knowing whether they would want to believe in Jesus. In Soul Survivor, again, I think we shared this the other week, that over the, the three weeks of Soul Survivor and the week of Momentum, they saw to about 1,700 people make commitments to Jesus. Isn't that great? 1,700. And they say the church is in decline. Praise God. But I know that that event wasn't just that they kind of picked up 1,700 random people from the streets and plonked them in a big top in a field. That they were brought by Christian young people and had been involved in youth work and different outreach events and they'd, they'd been pouring into them and pouring into them and it came to that moment where they were invited to an event where God was able to, to bring that moment when they would decide and make that choice. But if it hadn't been that someone had brought them and someone had invested them and someone had spent time with them and someone had been praying and praying and praying, it's unlikely that would have happened. Do you get my point? Alpha's starting, and I pray it's a, a, a course that God blesses, but it needs us to be inviting. What's the worst that can happen? Someone will say no. You're not going to punch them in the face, are you, if they reject you? And it will cost you maybe the, the fact that they may say no, but that's part of the bitterness of eating the word. As they reject you again and reject Jesus, that hurts. But don't not invite them for that reason. Be praying. Be praying. You know, it's one of my, my, the things that God said to me, and I am finishing, uh, as, as I saw these people come to faith in Jesus in Soul Survivor, I thought it's so encouraging, it's brilliant to see, and the whole tent cheers, and it's fantastic, and God is good. And we see that on Alpha, and we see that happening, but we don't see that very often in our church services. And if we do make a prayer of commitment, we ask you to just be very quiet. We don't call people to the front, generally. But you know, it's so brilliant when you see someone being born again. And I pray that we'd come back to those days, even soon, where we'd see people coming to faith in our services, in our Alpha. And here's the last question. Have you ever had the chance to lead someone to faith in Jesus? Just out of interest, hands up if you have led someone you know. It's not you that's done it. You've just been in the right time in the right place. There's a lot of people who haven't had that privilege. It's not for the special. It's not just for the leaders. We're all witnesses. One of the things we're wanting to, to encourage in the coming days in our church and through house groups is, is not just to leave mission to the set-piece events, but to be witnessing and seeking to win people for Jesus wholesale everywhere. Why isn't it that we haven't seen people come to faith in a house group meeting on Wednesday? Why isn't it that you've gone out to coffee and you've been working and praying with a friend and say, do you want to become a Christian now as you sense that prompting? Why not? gospel's powerful. Pray that we would see the increase of his kingdom amongst us. We all do our part. Came across this story about some chaplains to those who work on ships and in the ocean. He said this, the ship just docked at Grimsey 
was Chinese. The red flag was flying from its stern, showed its allegiance to the communist regime. As port missionary for Immingham and Grimsby, my task was to go on board and talk to the crew, my wife helping me. In the mess room, the crew had just finished eating, rice bowls still on the table, clearing a space. I laid out some scriptures in Chinese. One man picked them up, and they all started talking among themselves as if they were not present. After some time, he turned to me and said, asking in very good English, are you Christians? After my reply, he said, good, good, we want to become Christians and know more about God. The chaplain was amazed. He found out that it seemed that before the ship left China, they had some problems and a Christian man had helped them showing kindness and love. They'd experienced the same Christian love in other ports too. And they worked out, if this is Christianity, we want to become Christians. And we had the joy of leading four of those seamen to Christ. When I visited them again that week, clearly God had been at work in their lives. They said, we should be baptized too, shouldn't we? And I had to tell them there was no time to arrange that before their ship sailed. But sure, God would provide the opportunity. He did. Two months later, their ship returned and they had the joy of listening to their testimonies and baptizing them in the local church. We all play our part. We're witnessing people. Here's a great test. How do you know if your mission on earth is finished? You're still alive, aren't you? Let's pray together. Thank you that you're alive, Lord. Thank you that today is the day of salvation. The time is near. We are to be witnesses of a risen Jesus of a kingdom that is coming and will know no end, a kingdom that is larger today and greater than it was yesterday. And that salvation in Jesus' name is open. But the time is pressing. If you don't believe what you've backslidden and said, not really sure, commit your life again to Jesus. What does that mean? It means, in summary, believing that he died for you and that the tomb couldn't hold him. He rose again on the third day and that you have chosen and you will say to him, I will follow you now, Lord Jesus. I'll trust you. And I pray that in the coming months we would see an increase of those decisions, those choices of people saying, you know what? The world doesn't give the answers it pretends it has. But I see now clearly Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us all up again with your, with your spirit, that you would propel us out as witnesses. Not being sheepish and shy about telling but let it come easily. It doesn't always, and our heart beats and we feel like we get tongue-tied, but let it become more and more natural. To speak of the fact that we've been to church on Sunday, that what God has done to share the stories of testimony, the struggles as well as the success. And I pray that in the coming events that we've got planned, we would see a harvest because of the, the groundwork, the filling up, the investment, the prayerfulness. We're seeking the lost in the name of Jesus, that they should become followers and brothers and sisters. Together we pray. Amen.
sing one.